the overwhelming majority of medical expenditure across the whole Western world these days is, of course, on the health problems of the elderly. And because of the indirect savings, the fact that the kids of the elderly are, will be more productive because they won't have to spend time looking after their sick parents, the fact that the elderly themselves will still be able-bodied and therefore they will be able to continue to contribute wealth to society in whatever way, rather than simply consuming wealth the way things are now. So any way you look at it, it would be economically completely suicidal for any country not to ensure that these therapies are available irrespective of ability to pay um, you know, uh, to anyone who's old enough to need them. Now, of course, it sounds very counterintuitive counter to an American audience because of, you know, private health care and all that, but that makes no difference. The fact is, whether, whatever your mechanism is for actually, you know, allocating the money to make sure that the therapies are available, still, these therapies will pay for themselves so fast that it's going to happen. And there will be this decade or more during which, even if governments have been slow on the uptake now, you know, they will be able to do that forward planning and investment and so on, front-loading of. And I think the knee-jerk reaction, because the reality is so alternative, right, it's such a different way to think about the world and the future if you're going to live to be 500. But the knee-jerk reaction, for me anyways, is to be the fear, right, of what could go wrong. But when we take the opposite view of, well, what could go right – my work is, as a clinician, I do a lot with with degenerative brain diseases and Alzheimer's in particular, and exactly what you're saying is it, we see play out every single day at epidemic levels right now of where elderly people become a drain on society, on the caregiver, on their families. They become a liability, not an asset anymore. And if we can improve their health and they can contribute to, continue to contribute, then imagine the possibilities of, uh, like, climate change, what we've been talking about, the plastics problems, rhinoceri in Africa, right? All of these problems could be solved by people who are at the height of their wisdom and experience, right? Because they still are able to contribute to society. And so thinking about all that potential, not just day to day, the way I do, um, but, but as this whole shift in society and the way we plan for the future is super exciting. Welcome to Collective Insights. Today we're thrilled to announce we have with us Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Dr. de Grey is a biomedical gerontologist and is the Chief Science Officer of the SENS Research Foundation, which is dedicated to combating the aging process. He's also the VP of New Technology Discovery at Ajax Therapeutics and is Editor-in-Chief of Rejuvenation Research, the world's highest impact peer-reviewed journal focused on the intervention of aging. You're going to hear him share how and why technology and scientific advancements will dramatically extend human lifespan to 130, 150, or even 500 years old, and what that could mean for the world we live in. We're going to dive into the details of the damage repair modalities being developed that offer hope for living longer. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com podcast. You'll get a summary of our show and can join in the conversation in the comments. You'll also find links to get involved with or donate to the work Aubrey de Grey is leading up at the SENS Research Foundation. Last but not least, check out his conference Undoing Aging in Berlin, October 21st through 23rd, which is open to the public and tickets are on sale now. Stay tuned to gain insights on when and how we'll achieve longer lives and how it will impact our world. Let's jump right in. Here's Heather and Aubrey. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined by Aubrey de Grey. So welcome, Dr. de Grey. Um, you have the, the SENS Research Institute, and that is where you are looking forward at what do we do about this problem of aging? And you define it as a problem, where a lot of other people just sort of accept that aging, death and taxes, this is going to happen to all of us. So tell us about your perspective on why aging is a problem and what we might be able to do about it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really quite extraordinary when you think about it, that there's any real dispute about whether or not aging is a problem. Because the fact is, People don't like getting sick. Disease, you know, is generally agreed to be a problem. And the, the situation we have today is that people who were born a long time ago have problems, have medical problems, right? Now, I mean, how is that not a problem? 
So the only reason I think why people even think this way at all is by way of really a kind of psychological self-manipulation, you know, essentially trying to put aging out of their minds because we can't do anything about it yet and, um, you know, get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it. Um, and just kind of on the, on the, on the, on the pretense that aging is some kind of thing that is completely distinct from um, diseases and is somehow off limits to medicine when in fact that's complete nonsense. So what do you propose we do about it? Well, of course, it's not easy or we would have done it already. But the approach that Sense Research Foundation takes and that I've been taking for the past 20 years is damage repair. So essentially, aging of the body is no different conceptually from aging of a simple man-made machine like a car or an aeroplane. It is simply a fact of physics, not biology, that the... Um, that any machine with moving parts is going to do itself damage uh, as a consequence of its normal operation. And that that damage is going to progressively accumulate and eventually it's going to exceed the amount of damage that the machine is set up to tolerate without, without decline in function. So that's why we go downhill late in life. And the approach that we already successfully implement to maintain machines for as long as we like uh, if we can be bothered, is, of course, preventative maintenance. The reason why there exist vintage cars is because cars are relatively simple machines, and therefore it is possible with today's technology to actually eliminate the various types of damage, whether it be rust or whatever, that occur, uh, and to do so as long, for as long as we like, so that the amount of rust never gets to the point where the doors fall off. Um, and in the case of the human body, which is, of course, a much more complicated machine, we simply have to figure out how to do the same thing. The question is, are we within striking distance of developing a panel of medicines that can actually do that? And 20 years ago, when I first started thinking this way, I realized that, yes, we were with actually within moderately striking distance of doing that, that all of the various types of damage that we knew about um, that were accumulating in the body were theoretically amenable to repair by interventions that could be described in quite a lot of detail already and therefore, you know, could be implemented. And moreover, that it had been already by that time a very long period, nearly 20 years, since we had last discovered any new type of damage. So it looked as though we understood we could characterize what aging is at the molecular cellular level um, pretty thoroughly already. And indeed, over the intervening 20 years since that time, um, that has not changed. We have still not found any new types of damage that um, we have to come up with some whole new paradigm for, for repairing. So things are looking pretty good. So I want to make this distinction between what you talk about as repairing damage and then kind of what we're doing already in integrative medicine, which is this optimizing function. And to some degree, there's some overlap. But in my clinic, for example, as a doctor, what I do is I say, okay, if there are toxins, that's going to cause more damage. So I want to take as many toxins out. And if there are natural processes that support the repair of damage, like nutrients, having enough nutrients around, certainly NAD is one of the things that comes up often, um, that if we can support all of that, then we're going to minimize the amount of damage that occurs. But the distinction here is what you're saying is there's going to be damage that happens. We can't avoid that. But what we can do is go in and repair the damage. Right. So so um, let me uh, put it this way. So a, a large part of the reason why there is a bit of, um, well, why one has to go into a lot of detail in order to really make the distinction is because we already have in the body uh, this very large arsenal of automatic built-in um, self-repair machinery machinery that goes and repairs damage as it's generated by metabolism. And in fact, the only reason that aging exists at all is because that inbuilt damage repair machinery is not 100% comprehensive. If you like, there are gaps in it. There are types of damage that the body generates uh, which do not have corresponding repair machinery. So the reason why we live longer than mice is because the gaps in our automatic inbuilt repair machinery are smaller than the gaps in a massive one. Um, and the purpose here is to fill the gaps that remain. So 
the optimizations that you're talking about, like with nutrients and so on, are uh, their purpose is to make sure that the inbuilt damage repair machinery works as well as possible. If there are deficiencies in micronutrients, for example, then even though the machinery is there, there will still be some damage that accumulates that, that unnecessarily, so to speak. But that is distinct from the types of damage that we simply do not have the machinery to repair, whatever, and that has to be you know, augmented by medicine one way or another. So let's talk about some of those mechanisms that you're looking at. So senolytics come up, the in, intracellular pieces, the extracellular pieces. Will you take us through those different things that you've outlined as targets for sure. anti-aging? Sure. So um, there are, of course, many, 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 many different types of damage that accumulate if we go down to the molecular level and the cellular level. But the big breakthrough that helped me to see that this was a tractable problem, not just a theoretically solvable problem, was when I appreciated that we could classify those many types of damage into a very manageable number of categories. So I came up with just seven categories that um, seemed to cover all the bases. The utility of this classification comes when we look at the damage repair modalities because the purpose of it was to say that within each category, there may be many examples, but they are all amenable to repair by the same generic approach. So let's take one example, um, cell loss. So cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells and their differentiation, of course. Um, now, of course, if that happens, then um, you, know, you progressively have fewer and fewer cells of the given type, and you end up having not enough cells for, that, for the organ in question to do its job. So if we're talking about the brain, then an obvious example here would be Parkinson's disease, which is driven by the progressive loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. And all of us have lost maybe a quarter of those dopaminergic neurons that we used to have uh, by old age, but there's enough margin of error in the system that that's not a problem. The problem is the minority of people who lose maybe three quarters of the ones that they had in early adulthood, and those people have Parkinson's. All right, so... Um, the obvious fix is stem cell therapy, you know, to manipulate cells in the laboratory into the right state so that we can inject them into the substantia nigra and they will divide and differentiate to create new dopaminergic neurons. And that is in progress right now. There are clinical trials going on that, to do exactly that. Um, nearly 30 years ago, there were attempts at this in the days when we didn't know pretty much anything about how to manipulate stem cells before injecting them, and sure enough, the result was that it very, very rarely worked at all. But when it worked at all, it worked spectacularly well. There are reports of people who have, were completely free of Parkinson's symptoms for more than 15 years after just one injection, you know, and that was despite not having any L-dopa or anything. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it works. And of course, the thing is, the, the point here is that there are other cases, you know, we lose pacemaker cells in the heart, you know, things like that. And these, um, and the therapies, the stem cell therapies that you would need to do for these different organs, different tissues, will not be the same. But they will have a lot in common. All stem cell therapies have a lot in common. So that means that once we've got a few of them working, working well, then the amount of effort and time and discovery that's going to be required to develop the next one and the one after that will be much, much less. And therefore, from a purely medical perspective, from a pragmatic, practical perspective, um, this classification of a large number of things into this very small number of seven categories is a very important step. And so I first put all this forward in the early 2000s. And it took maybe 10 years for my colleagues to really get their heads around what I was saying, but that's very much happened now. So over the past 10 years, there have been a series of reinventions of the same concept, talking about, you know, nine hallmarks or six pillars or whatever. Um, and it's all the same thing. So stem cells are one of these applications. What would be another potential application that we might be seeing already come up clinically? And stem cells are relatively inaccessible to the common person, right? Like they're extremely expensive. And right now you have to leave the United States to get them. But are there other things that are maybe easier to come by that someone could use and apply right now? Well, um, you mentioned analytics already. So one of the other set, uh, six categories that I um, enumerated back then was senescent cells. Actually, I 
delineate the category a little bit more widely than that. I, I say death-resistant cells. So this basically means cells that are, are bad for us, um, and we'd like to get rid of them, and the body does try to get rid of them with the immune system and so on, and succeeds by and large, but nevertheless some of them kind of resist that and continue to survive and to generally you know, do bad stuff and secrete bad stuff. And certainly the most prominent um, subset of that category of death-resistant cells are these things called senescent cells, which have that name because they have a gene expression pattern that resembles what's called replicative senescence, the phenomenon that was first discovered in fibroblasts in cell culture back in the 1960s by Len Hayflick, where we found that, where he found that cells, um, if you just make them divide and divide and divide and divide, then they eventually give up and stop dividing, but they, and they don't die, they just sit there, um, and they have various uh, changes in gene expression, which have been studied, obviously, a great deal ever since. So we see these cells in the body. Um, Chances are that, by and large, they do not actually arise from excessive replication, uh, but rather from other sources of DNA damage. But that doesn't matter. The point is they are what they are. And some of them do not get destroyed by the immune system. They do not commit apoptosis. Um, so we need, we'd like to get rid of them. And in the past decade, past, I guess, eight or nine years, there have been huge advances in, in doing exactly that. And in particular, there have been some existing molecules, both drugs that have you know, that are already approved and also even nutraceuticals that are reasonably potent in selectively eliminating such cells. And the benefits seem to be pretty clear. So this is really good news. So are, are there things that you suggest people do there? Or um, do you think that this is very individually based? Or do you think that this is going to rescue us? Like, can you live however you want and then start adding things like this later in life? Well, so first of all, let me emphasize that I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD. So I do not give medical advice. Uh, but also, um, you know, it's clear that this is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, one thing that we can certainly say about this kind of divide and conquer approach of, you know, dissecting the damage accumulation problem into the various categories is that every one of these types of damage can kill you pretty much on schedule, on its own, however well we fix all the others. So we do not want to in any way focus on one particular thing or have some hierarchy of importance. There is no such hierarchy. Um, however, more than that, we can say that um, you know, the things that are available today are not particularly effective. They are better than nothing, it seems. They do some, have some potency, but we definitely need therapies that are more effective. And I mean, so for example, um, last year, the company that's leading the charge on uh, analytics, a company called Unity Biotechnology in the Bay Area, um, is uh, was able to announce the results of a phase one clinical trial for a proprietary analytic that they have developed. Um, they were using it not systemically, they were just using it on osteoarthritis actually. Um, so trying to eliminate senescent chondrocytes and synoviocytes. Um, and the effect on self-reported pain was so significant that they were able to report efficacy, even though it was just phase one, obviously a very small number of patients. And um, so, I mean, they had to be a bit tentative about it. Phase two is already going on. Um, so, yeah, but, but I mean, you know, things are looking really, really good. That's exciting. Okay. So then what you really, sh where you really shine is this concept around escape velocity, right? Mm -hmm. Where right now the expected human lives for about 80 years and um, some live, push that a bit and get to 115. But what is really exciting in your research is what could push that to 150 or to 200? And so what do you think has to happen in order for people who may be alive today to live to be 150 or 200 years old? So I am completely sure that the only way that we're going to get past about 130 is by actual damage repair actually turning the clock back in a comprehensive way, in other words, repairing and eliminating essentially all of the types of damage that we accumulate, um, as opposed to simply making the body run more cleanly and generate this damage more slowly than it normally would. Because the challenge of doing it that way, of slowing down the generation of damage, is that in order to do so, we have to kind of find tweaks to this ridiculously complicated thing called metabolism um, that don't have 
significant unintended consequences that, that make uh, that, that stop it stop the body from doing things we need it to do to keep us alive and that's just you know the intractability of uh, metabolism is just beyond imagining of course it's not just that it's incredibly complicated because you know you could imagine that, that could in principle be addressed by you know really clever computational you know machine learning and so on the problem is that however clever your artificial intelligence is it can only find things out on the basis of data that it starts with. And there's a huge amount that we just don't know about how the body works, let alone the stuff that we don't even know that we don't know. So, you know, it's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. Whereas damage repair is a vastly more tractable approach. It's something that we can do essentially outside of the specifics of metabolism. The way I like to say it is that essentially sidestepped our ignorance because we... Um, you know, we have to characterize what the damage is, what the what the differences are at the molecular and cellular level between an older person and a younger person uh, that eventually, you know, that, that, that contribute to why the older person has less long to live or less long to stay healthy. Um, but we don't have to understand the details of how that damage was actually generated. So what, is there somebody alive today that you think will live to be 150? I think that, the chances of people alive today living to 150, or some people alive today living to 150, are very high. I would say at least 80%. Um, and I think there's at least a 50% chance that some people aged 40 or 50 today will live to 150. Moreover, I believe that nearly every, whatever that number actually is, which of course depends on how soon we develop the technology, nearly everybody who lives to 150, will also live to 1,000. Say more. Well, this is what you're mentioning, of course, this longevity escape velocity thing. If it's true that the only way we're going to get people to 150 is by damage repair, by bona fide rejuvenation, then we have to ask what that means for buying time, for staying one step ahead of the problem. <clears throat> So if one is, let's say, 60 years old at the time that these therapies come along, which is maybe 20 years from now, let's say, right? Um, and then these therapies are not perfect, but they're fairly good. Then they might be able to rejuvenate that person to being biologically, let's say, 40. Okay? Um, in terms of the amount of damage that's in their body still after the therapies have been administered. Right. Now, of course, they're still alive. They're still generating damage because they're still metabolizing. So that means that over time, they're going to carry on accumulating damage. Now, of course, we can carry on administering the therapies as often as we like during that time, but the therapies are not perfect. So there are going to be a certain subset of the damage that they used to accumulate, but they're still going to be accumulating you know, therapy or no therapy. And that means that by the time they're, let's say, 90, they are going to have as much damage as they had when they were 60, right? And it's going to be, let's call it the difficult damage, the damage that the therapies don't work on, right? But Which the technology means, might be a whole lot better. Well, this is, this is it. Suppose in the, in the scenario where they're just continuing to get the same therapies forever, right, then they're going to get sick there eventually because, you know, even though it's only the difficult damage, still it's going to accumulate to, uh, to a, a point that exceeds what the body can tolerate and therefore, you know, stuff's gonna, bad stuff's going to happen and so on. But as you say, um, you know, it's been 30 years since the therapies were first administered, which means 30 years of time for people like me to carry on improving the therapy, not only in terms of safety and convenience and cost and so on, but also in terms of comprehensiveness. And so that means that by the time this person is 90, we'll be able to give them Sense 2.0. And, um, you know, we, uh, they still won't be perfect, but they'll be closer to being perfect than they were before, which means we will be able to re-rejuvenate the same people um, even though they're now 90, and they won't be biologically 60 for the third time until they're, let's say, 150, and so on. So this is the whole point. And if one actually tries to quantify this, if one, has, if one tries to ask, you know, what is the minimum rate at which scientists would need to be improving the comprehensiveness of the therapies in order to stay one step ahead of the problem, and that's that, that rate is the thing that I have called longevity escape velocity, okay? Um, well, it's, it's ridiculously small. I mean, um, if, we, if we look at any other technology, you know, powered flight or whatever, then, of course, the predictability of how soon the fundamental breakthrough, initial breakthrough would be made 
it's impossible. You know, I mean, we always talk about how, you know, people like Lord Kelvin would always, would, would be saying that power and flight was theoretically impossible right up until it was done, right? But also, conversely, we can say, well, Leonardo da Vinci probably thought that he wasn't 400 years away from actually um, making the whole thing work. So, you know, there's no way to predict fundamental breakthrough. But after that, everything's completely different. The incremental advances that are made refining that breakthrough tend to happen at a pretty predictable and a pretty rapid rate. And it's the same with computers, it's the same with anything, right? So, um, you know, so it's pretty much inconceivable that we would fall below longevity escape velocity once we had got as far as getting people out to 150. So what comes up very quickly after this and part of the resistance and, and maybe why it took so long to get traction on your end is, well, if we think about, it's so foreign to think about living to be 150 or 200, and then you come up with all of these societal things, right? Like, well, what about climate change? Like, is there even going to be a world worth living on? What about the generation behind us? Don't we have to make space for them? So population growth, what do we do with all those years, right? If we have all these extra years and the generation before us modeled that you retire at 60 and now we're going to live for another 100 years, 200 years after that, then what do we do with ourselves? Um, part of it is we advance this technology, right? So we can live to a thousand. We've got to stay on that on that path. Um, but w what are your answers to some of those those criticisms or some of those questions? Because really, they're not they're not exactly critical. It's just like, whoa, like, mind blown. What do we do with all that time? Yeah, so of course, my first answer is to remind people that this longevity stuff that they're suddenly getting fixated on is a side effect of staying healthy. Because, I mean, let's face it, people die from being sick, right? And people don't tend to be particularly ambivalent when it comes to staying healthy. You know, there tends to be pretty ubiquitous unanimity that staying healthy is good and being sick is bad. So, you know, it's rather important not to actually just you know, just mysteriously forget that, you know, and start talking about the stuff, this, these consequences as if the consequences were the only thing that um, that was on the table here. Um, so, I mean, first of all, it is obviously important to address these questions. You know, where will we put all the people? How what will how will we stop dictators from living forever? Things like that. Um, uh, but first of all, it turns out that all of these questions are ridiculously easy to answer. I mean, incredibly easy. Um, there are really straightforward reasons to uh, what, why we just like can easily avoid these problems. Secondly, even if that's not true, even if some of these problems were actually to um, to materialise in a post-aging world, the question is: Is there any conceivable scenario in which these problems would be so bad? that they were worse than what we have today with all of these people, the 100,000 people dying every day from aging and most of them dying after a long period of disease and decline and decrepitude and dependence and general misery. You know, aging is really quite a bad problem. Um, so one has to make that question, make that evaluation, which people just don't. You know, they just completely forget it. Um, and then, um, of course, there's also the question of choice, the fact that, you know, we today... Um, may have some opinion about whether the problems that would be created as a consequence of solving the problem we have today um, would be even worse than the problem we have today. But humanity of the future may have a different opinion because they may have other technologies that would have minimized the problems that might, might hypothetically be created. And, and so it, and clearly it's humanity of the future that, has, that is entitled to make the choice. So, so if we were to say, oh dear, you know, overpopulation, let's not go there, um, and to delay the development of these therapies, then we would be denying humanity of the future the option, you know, and we would be condemning a whole cohort of people to an unnecessarily painful and unnecessarily early death, you know, just because we thought we knew better, which is bullshit. Um, right. Well, so I think part of what I heard you just say is like those problems are so easy to solve right, and one of go, them let me go through them all right so, i mean just just a few of them just for illustration so people actually say oh dear dictators will live forever they actually say this right now last i checked you know dictator is fairly high on the league table of risky jobs um 
you know, not a lot of dictators die of aging in the first place, in other words. Um, and the, furthermore, the ones that do it tend to have organized their succession beforehand. So they, you know, it's as if they were already immortal. So, I mean, come on. Um, well, no, and, you know, the one that I really want to stop worrying about is climate change. So can you just okay, talk so, yeah, about I'm, how that's I'm, easy to solve? Sure. Then I can sleep sure, better at night. Sure, totally. So why do we have climate change? People would say because we've got too many people. But that's nonsense. The reason we have climate change is because we have too much pollution. We have too much burning of fossil fuels and too much agriculture and so on. And hello, we've already got technologies on the way that will be completely ubiquitous and established way before we get any um, get these therapies coming along, let alone before the therapies actually have a significant demographic impact, um, that are going to completely solve that. You know, I mean, renewable energy from, from wind and um, sun is already about the same cost to generate as uh, fossil fuels. And it's getting cheaper all the time because of improved technology. And, of course, you've got to worry about, you know, um, energy storage, you know, batteries and so on. But that's also coming down really fast. So, you know, there is no way that fossil fuels are going to carry on even, you know, being a thing by 20 years from now, to speak of. Uh, and, of course, the same with agriculture. You know, artificial meat is already, you know, a thing. And um, 20 years from now, for sure, and certainly it's going to be both tastier and cheaper than regular meat. So, again, you know, a huge amount of the source of greenhouse gases will just go away. And not even as a result of people waking up and deciding that climate change is actually quite a bad thing, but rather just because people can make money out of it. You know, I mean, so, I mean, and this applies across the board in terms of other pollution, you know, whether it's desalination or whether it's, um, you know, plastic eating bacteria or whatever. So, you know, the, the whole idea of overpopulation arises not from you know, not having enough space. It it's all about pollution, and it's going away. And, you know, That's there's very no reassuring. Scenario. Well, sure. I mean, there's no scenario that one can possibly really, you know, imagine uh, when looking at the technologies and the rate at which they are coming along, in which the carrying capacity of the planet could in any way fail to rise faster than the population. There's no way that that no could way. happen. Absolutely no way. I mean, if you look at, you have to obviously quantify what what could happen to the population as well. And, you know, it's just not nearly as dramatic as a result of the elimination of aging as people intuitively imagine. Um, you know, first of all, at the moment, as of today, you know, the birth rate worldwide is more than twice the death rate, which means that even today, if we just halve the birth rate, you know, people only had half as many kids as they have, then population would already be going down. And that's why, you know, the US, of course, population, uh, fertility rates are declining, plummeting throughout all of the largest countries in the world, except Nigeria. Um, you know, it, it, the fertility rates are below four in India, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in Brazil, in Indonesia. And, right. um, so, um, you know, this is why the UN predicts that global population will peak sometime this century, right? Of course, that is on the scenario where we don't have the elimination of aging. Okay. But even if we did, you know, the trajectory doesn't actually change, change all that dramatically. And then also you have to take into account, of course, fertility uh, consequences of eliminating aging. So some people will have the knee-jerk reaction of saying, oh dear, you know, I mean, if we don't have aging anymore, then women are going to carry on being able to have kids at any age, which is true. And therefore, we will have an even worse aging, uh, um, um, you know, population problem than we would have if we still had menopause. Um, but that's nonsense, because if we look at what's happened around the world, every single time that a country has reached a point of sufficient economic prosperity and female emancipation and education and so on, to go through this demographic transition where fertility rates plummet, the other thing that changes at the same time is women choose, on average, to have their children later. Now, of course, only a little bit later, because that's all they can do now. But when they've got the option to delay by another decade and another decade, presumably the same reasons that are making them currently delay by a few years will kick in. So we may actually see an attenuation of population growth resulting from the opportunity to have kids whenever you like. Certainly, there are a ton of questions and, and decisions that people make. Um, it, 
can, with the consideration of, of their years of fertility or the years that they're going to live. And right. all of that basically gets scrapped, right? Like you just, you start over with how you live your life because right. the, the potential just shifts so dramatically, so profoundly. You got it. Yeah. I mean, actually, what I spend a lot of my time on now is trying to get policymakers and decision makers around the world to anticipate that. Because, you see, what's going to happen is, you know, people often say, you know, what will people do when they're 500 years old? And, of course, I have the faintest idea, and I don't care. I think it's a ridiculous thing to be thinking about what people will actually do. Because we're not going to have any for any 500-year-old people for at least another 400 years, right? Whatever happens, you know, people are only going to get older at one year per year. And, you know, a lot happens in 400 years that we can't exactly, you know, anticipate. So this is all ridiculous, but um, but the um, thing is that that's not what we need to worry about. What we need to worry about is when people start expecting to live to five hundred years. Um, you know, because they're going to want different health insurance. <laughs> they're going to want different life insurance, or you know, pension plans, or you know, inheritance arrangements. And these are big ticket items. These are the things that really dominate the global economy. At the end of the day, so. Um, you know, when that expectation shifts, um, people better be ready you know, to, 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 to modify the way the global economy works and to provide different products or whatever, um, you know, to, 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 to match. And that's not going to happen if they haven't been thinking about it beforehand. So for me, what matters is what is going to be the trigger that causes people's expectations of how long they're going to live to shift from what they are today, namely, they're going to live only slightly longer than their parents, into, um, you know, they're going to live more or less forever. Um, and therefore, how soon is that shift going to happen? And how suddenly is it going to happen? And my answer is terrifying. I think it's going to happen with high probability within the next five years. And I think it's going to be pretty much overnight. It's going to be extraordinarily sudden. So it is a matter of massively high priority for decision makers and policy makers around the world to be what I call anticipating that anticipation and, um, you know, getting their shit together and understanding what we should do at that point. Certainly. And at that point, it sounds to me like maybe it won't be very accessible, kind of like stem cells are today. The oh, it won't gets... be accessible at that point. The yeah. point is this will actually happen not as a result of these therapies arriving. The reason why it's going to be so soon is because it will, re it will, it will occur as a result of what people like me say on camera. And on, uh, on stage. Now, of course, I already say these things, but I am only one of maybe a dozen experts in the biology of aging who do a lot of public uh, outreach and media. And the rest of them, at the moment, uh, despite being just as knowledgeable as me, uh, do not say those things. The thing is that I, since you know, we're all good friends, right, um, I know exactly why they don't say it. It's not because they don't think it. I mean, maybe they're not quite as optimistic as me, but they're within range. The reason that you wouldn't know it from what they say is because, unlike me, all of them rely for their funding, for the work they do, on governments. They rely on getting grant applications approved, right, through peer review and all that. And, of course, there's never enough money to go around, so the committees that choose which people are going to get the money and which people are not, are constantly, desperately looking for reasons to say no, right? And, um, of course, a very straightforward, nicely ass-covering way, a reason to say no is, oh, this person said something irresponsible to, you know, to some journalist the other day, you know, that, that you know, unjustifiably got people's hopes up. So the result is that my colleagues are extremely keen to err on the side of caution and curmudgeonliness um, when it comes to um, what they say. But, of course, that whole thing is a balance between, you know, what you want to say that's responsible and what you want to say that's true. And the more progress gets made in the laboratory, in mice, not humans, in mice, <clears throat> the more progress gets made, the more optimistic you're going to be. You know, there's uh, uh, going to be a balance. So that centre of gravity of what the expert community say 
is going to shift. Well, it already um, has, right? When well, you were... You're so right. You're so right. I mean, uh, I, the example I like to give these days is my good friend David Sinclair, who's definitely one of these dozen people, same as I am. Um, he wrote a book that came out a few months ago. It was called um, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, right? Now, I will tell you that, you know, as little as five years ago, David could not have written a book with that title and kept his job. He's a professor at Harvard, right? Um, you know, so, you know, things are changing already. But they haven't yet changed to the point where people have kind of um, started to get their hopes up. Because uh, this, whole, this whole irrationality that we see in society where people forget about the health aspect and they only think about these things that they can be worried about, you know, this is all a psychological self-manipulation, right? It's all a matter of kind of putting this out of your mind and getting on with your miserably short life and keep it, and, you know, trying to pretend that aging is a blessing in disguise so that you don't have to be preoccupied by this terrible thing that's going to happen to you. And, of course, that only makes sense, even psychologically, let alone rationally, um, uh, for as long as the prospect of something actually happening is still negligible, right? When it becomes distinctly non-negligible, it becomes appropriate to actually absolutely get your hopes up and get emotionally invested in it and, you know, agitate to hasten the defeat of aging. And that is the transition that's going to occur. And based on the rate of progress in the laboratory, they say, in mice and such like, um, and, you know, how far I think we have to get before my colleagues will start saying really quite quite optimistic things to camera. Um, you know, that's not very far. So that's why I say chances are five years. The actual therapies probably won't exist for more than 15 years from now. Mm. But, um, you know, and that's good that we'll have that, one, that, that decade or more of preparatory time. But still, it's going to be a very turbulent period because of these sh shifts that are going to happen in big-ticket items that people are going to be changing their minds about. And so you're thinking in the next five years in the lab, in rats or in mice, we will have the technology to help them to live at this this rate that's past their genetically programmed death. Um, life. Yeah. Okay, and so no, then... Well, let, me, let me elaborate a little bit on that. So Please. we are not going to reach this thing, longevity escape velocity, in mice, because it's harder to reach longevity escape velocity in a shorter-lived organism than in a longer-lived organism, right? Because you've got less time to make the next improvement to the therapies, right? Well, and also there's not a ton of interest in keeping mice alive forever. That's also true, but even if we take that out, still it's technologically harder because you've got less time to make the next advance. Um, okay, so so it, that, but what we will do, I believe, is we will get mice to live maybe a year, year and a half longer than they normally do. And of course, those extra years, those extra time will be healthy time. And here's the critical point. We will do it by rejuvenation therapies. In other words, we will do it by applying therapies to mice that have had exactly nothing done to them until they already reach middle age. We can already get a year, year and a half out of mice if we genetically modify the, you know, their ancestors. So they are born with, for example, no growth hormone receptor. Um, uh, so they get, they're very small and we have to keep them very warm, but they do live a hell of a lot longer than their um, siblings. Well, and the young plasma exchange, that that piece in mice has also worked to... Yeah, that hasn't, hasn't given significant um, life extension. You can't do it. I mean, it, it, it's definitely shown a number of, and we, we funded some of this work. Um, it's def we've definitely been able to show that and rejuvenate certain aspects of it in um, older, uh, older mice and rats uh, d doing this kind of thing. But it's not by any means comprehensive enough to actually give significant life extension. So I want to go back to your time frame and, and the, um, the predictions here, because you've been right. <laughs> 20 years ago, you were saying things that are now coming to fruition. So I'm curious, and I won't hold you to this And when we're 100 years from now, when we're having another conversation. But um, the next five years, you think the technology will be there for mice that will significantly shift things so that then the expectation for humans shifts and we start having more of those conversations because of the optimism. And then the technology to shift from mice to humans, you're predicting about 15 years for, for that science to kind of catch up and for there to be actual therapies available. That's and right. First of all, I do want to emphasize how speculative these time frame predictions of mine are. So when I talk about five years for mice, that's or even that is fairly speculative. But if we're talking about 15, 20 years for humans, that's ridiculous. I mean, so 
you know, I think that that is the time frame within which we have a 50-50 chance of getting to there. But I always like to emphasize that I think there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years, because there's all manner of possibilities that, you know, unforeseen obstacles. Of course. And then when we do get there for humans, initially, it's going to be extremely expensive. Not necessarily. Here's another thing that's going to happen during that anticipation period, right? People are going to know that it doesn't matter how wonderful these therapies are unless they can actually get them. So, right, so the um, imperative that is going to be imposed upon governments and so on will not only be to throw lots of money at the research to hasten the development of the therapies, but also to throw lots of money at infrastructure and training of medical personnel and so on and so forth to ensure that the therapies are widely disseminated as soon as they can be. Now, there are two things that are important to take into account in that regard. One of them is the electoral imperative. You know, it's just not going to be possible to get elected unless you have a manifesto commitment to have a war on ageing. And I mean, a proper war, I don't mean just like the war on cancer, which was, of course, you know, it troubled the MCI budget, but it was imperceptible to the US taxpayer, right? Um, I mean, you know, proper wartime kind of expenditure. Um, so there's that. But also... Um, there's the economic imperative, the fact that these therapies will unquestionably pay for themselves many times over really quickly, because the overwhelming majority of medical expenditure across the whole Western world these days is, of course, on the health problems of the elderly, and because of the indirect savings, the fact that the kids of the elderly uh, will be more productive because they won't have to spend time looking after their sick parents, the fact that the elderly themselves will still be able-bodied and therefore they will be able to continue to contribute wealth to society in whatever way, rather than simply consuming wealth the way things are now. So any way you look at it, it would be economically completely suicidal for any country not to ensure that these therapies are available irrespective of ability to pay um, you know, uh, to anyone who's old enough to need them. Well, now, of course, it sounds very counter counterintuitive to an American audience because of, you know, private health care and all that, but that makes no difference. The fact is, whether whatever your mechanism is for actually, you know, allocating the money to make sure that the therapies are available, still, these therapies will pay for themselves so fast that it's going to happen. And there will be this decade or more during which, even if governments have been slow on the uptake now, you know, they will be able to do that forward planning and investment and so on, front-loading of... And I think the knee-jerk reaction, because the reality is so alternative, right, it's such a different way to think about the world and the future if you're going to live to be 500. But the knee-jerk reaction, for me anyways, is to be the fear, right? What could go wrong? But when we take the opposite view of, well, what could go right? My work is, as a clinician, I do a lot with with degenerative brain diseases and Alzheimer's in particular. And exactly what you're saying is it, we see play out every single day at epidemic levels right now right. of where elderly people become a drain on society, on the caregiver, on their families. They become a liability, not an asset anymore. And if we can improve their health and they can contribute to continue to contribute then imagine the possibilities of uh, like climate change what we've been talking about the plastics problems rhinoceri and africa right all of these problems could be solved by people who are at the height of their wisdom and experience right because they still are able to contribute to society and so yep. thinking about all that potential not just day to day the way i do um but but as this whole shift in society and the way we plan for the future is super exciting. So what is, if you could do any research project in the entire world, no budget, but you wanted to answer one question, how would you, how would you set that up? What question would you answer? We don't really think in terms of answering questions. And the reason we don't is because no new questions seem to be coming up. We, um, you know, people often say, you know, why don't you write another book? Because I wrote this book about all of this for a real, relatively general audience um, in 2007. You know, that's quite a long time ago. Um, and you, obviously an awful lot has happened in the meantime, so it kind of would make sense. But the thing is that pretty much everything that's happened is pretty much what we predicted in that book. You know, the... Um, the uh, same, uh, you know, when I split aging up into these seven major pro sub-problems, that was like early 2000s, you know, we have not had any, you know, problem number eight come along in the meantime. Um, we haven't even had, uh, 
you know, some new discovery that shows that our, our proposed solution to one of the seven problems was actually not going to work, and we had to, you know, start from square one. No, that hasn't happened either. We're still pursuing the same general approaches. Um, and so, you know, it looks like this whole paradigm is standing the test of time really well. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, of course, there have been, you know, unexpected developments, but none of them have been bad surprises. They've all been good surprises, like, you know, suddenly CRISPR, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so, yeah, um, we don't, so we don't really answer questions. What we do is we, you know, we plod along figuring out the technical, you know, minutiae that actually allow our existing answers to be implemented. Interesting. I've never gotten, I ask that question a lot, and I've never gotten an answer like that. Well, um, I mean, for me, uh, a lot it. of it actually comes down to the psychology of discovery, because, mm -hmm. you know, a large part of the reason why I got into this field, I was originally a computer scientist until my late 20s, why I got into this field was my discovery that almost all biologists thought that aging was kind of not their problem. Um, you know, they would say, it's not very interesting, it's not very important. And I would say, why? And they would say, well, you know, it's just decay, isn't it? You know, what kind of, um, you know, fundamental truths about the universe are you going to discover by studying decay? And I would say, well, sure, but, 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 but it, 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 it's bad for you. Uh, and they would say, well, that's not my problem. And I would say, it kind of is. And, and, and like, so, I mean, there's a real fundamental distinction, I believe, between the mindset and the mode of operation of basic scientists, who do answer questions, of course, as opposed to technologists. Basic scientists are all about, you know, understanding nature, and technologists are about manipulating nature. And the way they go about it is fundamentally different. You know, the way you use evidence is different. When you're trying to discover stuff, you're always looking for the, um, the most direct evidence, you know, to come up with the next hypothesis and so on. Whereas pioneering technology relies entirely on leaps of faith, you know, on, on putting two and two together and making 17 and, you know, seeing what, what happens. And, you know, which is complete, I mean, it just doesn't compute. You know, what, what really doesn't compute is um, the idea of sidestepping one's ignorance that I mentioned earlier. You know, I mean, the idea of actually knowing enough, like there's no such thing as knowing enough when your whole modus of, when your whole like raison d'etre is finding things out for the sake of finding things out. So when you sort of sidestep again and go into this world of technology and apply it to health, it feels like when we've done that in the past, we come up against a lot of, like you said, the unknown unknowns. There are a lot of unpredictable consequences of this um that that we we just yeah we just they're they're unpredictable right by definition so uh, what about all of that i mean well, we've I talked mean, about it a bit well, the way i look at it is this yes undoubtedly medicine is fundamentally black magic because of the vast amount that we don't know but yet the uh, it works, you know. People are living longer and healthier now than they were before, and a lot of the reason why is medicine. So, you know, I figure it's okay. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. We are, we are constantly crossing bridges of that nature as we go, and that's fine. And so there's a lot of confidence in what you're saying. You, you've been predicting this for a long time. A lot of it has come true. Um, and the surprises that you found, you say, are, are usually f positive. Um, Always. Oh, are always positive. Okay, that there, there is a ton of confidence in that. Um, I can't think, well, I mean, I'm just talking about the past, not the future, right? I'm saying right. in the past two decades, since I started thinking and talking this way, no bad news has happened. All right. But, all right. And I have it. I'm very, I, you can probably feel it, but like, I'm a little nervous about all of this. I have a lot of trepidation around if we shift things so out of the natural order, I'm a naturopathic doctor, right? So I, I have a lot of reverence for the natural order of things and the way that the universe and the, the world, the planet works. And that there are some things that I think we may not f ever fully understand, but that doesn't mean I don't have respect for them. And I don't think that there's a lot of value in that. And so if we completely shift gears and, and apply this type of technology to the human body, what, what might we run up against? Or do you just completely reject that? I don't reject it at all. I think we absolutely need to keep our eyes open with every step that we take to look out for unintended consequences that we can then preempt and avoid and, you know, deal with, either by developing, by going in a different direction with different medicine or by, or by developing an adjunct medicine that addresses the side effect or whatever, you know, but that's no different from the way that we do medicine today already.
Yeah. And I I guess I would argue that the way we do medicine today conventionally, it really it is not working, that people are quite sick, that most of America certainly is is sick, is overweight, depressed, we're, we're very heavily medicated, and that my great-grandparents lived longer than my grandparents, and this generation that's coming up on on uh, on death um, will probably live less long than their the generation before them, at least in my family. And I know that's different in different families, but that there are degrees of, of pollution and toxicity and things that are, are making us quite sick at a societal level. Okay, um, so, so let me talk about that. So yeah, I, I would say that when you compare your grandparents to your great-grandparents, mm-hmm. that's a surprise. I would say that your, your family is an exception in that regard. Most people's grandparents lived longer than their great-grandparents. Um, now, today, you're absolutely right. The statistics say that lifespan, life expectancy is leveling off in the Western world. And in fact, the U.S. is the first country that has found uh, you know, a detectable uh, a reduction in longevity year on year, though I think that actually recovered again this year. Um, <clears throat> but that, all that says is that we have reached the point of diminishing returns for the current medical paradigm. So the only reason that we've had a continuing increase in in life expectancy across the industrialized world since World War II is because we were able to do things over and above the things that increased life expectancy between, let's say, 1880 and 1950. Now, during that period, of course, the reason why life expectancy was going up was because we were getting better and better at stopping people from dying young. You know, in the early 19th century, even in the wealthiest countries in the world, around 40%, 40% of babies would die before the age of one. And, of course, there was lots of um, death in childbirth and so on and so forth. And that was pretty much gone by World War II. So if nothing else had come along at all, then we would have seen a leveling off there. Now, of course, the rate of increase that we've seen since World War II in the industrialized world has been slower than what it was in the first half of the 20th century, but it's still been quite significant. And the reason for it, most people think, is mainly that the people who are dying are people who were born in and who spent their early life in, in situations of gradually increasing prosperity. The average family was more prosperous in, let's say, 1930 than it was in 1890. And prosperity translates into better nutrition, especially better prenatal and perinatal nutrition. That period is extraordinarily important in ter- because, of course, there's lots of chaotic cell division and, and stuff going on that can lay down damage, and, if, and it better be done right. So, you know, relatively modest deficiencies of micronutrients can end up putting one in a situation of being, you know, essentially accelerated aging early in life, which stays with you throughout life. So, I mean, of course, there's contribution from reduction in smoking and other things like that that have also made a difference. But most people think that the number one contributor to why people live longer now than they were in 1950 in the industrialized world is better prosperity. So, of course, that is, again, something that's going to hit diminishing returns. And I think it's fair to say that right now, that's exactly what we're seeing, that other stuff like the obesity epidemic is now at parity, more or less, with the residual um, very slight gains that we're making from prosperity, uh, from past prosperity. Um, So nothing's going to happen until we get the next paradigm, which, of course, is the stuff we do, rejuvenation technology. So where can people learn more? Uh, Undoing Aging is a conference that you're involved with. Um, Well, I run it. Yeah, (laughs) your conference. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Um, So can you tell people a little bit about that? Is it open to the public? Certainly, to absolutely everybody. Uh, It's in May this year in Berlin, May the 21st through 23rd, and it will feature a wide variety of absolutely cutting-edge science as well as stuff that is already available to the public. We have a whole session called Rejuvenation Now. uh, the uh, other place that, of course, one I would recommend people to go is our website, sense.org, S for sugar, E for elephant, M for November, S for sugar, dot org. Um, and it is, um, 
you know, written for everybody. The material there for people way uh, all the way from complete novices all the way up to absolute experts in the biology of aging. And of course, lots of news, not only about our own activities, but about um, activities around this whole, whole field. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty good place to start. Fantastic. Oh, and, and of course, there's also a nice big friendly donate button on the front page. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. DeGray. It's been a absolute pleasure having you on the show and I've learned so much. It, it really is mind-blowing to talk to you um, and, and to hear about this potential that sounds like it may show up in our lifetime. So fantastic. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Aubrey DeGray. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST63. If you have questions about this content, please go leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. See you next time.